Gift Biz Unwrapped, episode 238. I had been giving these caramels out as Christmas gifts and birthday gifts and things like that. And people had been telling me, you need to sell these caramels. Attention, gifters, bakers, crafters, and makers. Pursuing your dream can be fun. Whether you have an established business or are looking to start one now, you are in the right place. This is Gift Biz Unwrapped, helping you turn your skill into a flourishing business. Join us for an episode packed full of invaluable guidance, resources, and the support you need to grow your gift biz. Here is your host, gift biz gal, Sue Monheit. Hi there, it's Sue, and thanks for joining me here today. Just a couple of days before Halloween and all the scary antics. I used to do an annual Halloween party for my friends. It started when the kids were young, and all of them would go off trick-or-treating as a group, and the parents stayed back at the house, and we had our own fun. I'd make my famous chili, and when the kids returned, they'd have some too but only outside where it wouldn't matter if they were messy and they could compare their candy stashes and race around and it was just such great fun. I still do an annual party, but it's morphed into more of a fall celebration now that the kids are grown and out of the house. But my chili still shows up. Some traditions just have to keep going. I wanted to share that with you because we're entering into the season filled with lots of traditions after all. I've now started another tradition right here on the show. A couple of weeks ago, I announced the new Past Guest Spotlight, where I share successes from previous guests. Today's spotlight is on Nina from Raha Baby. You may remember her product, Peekaboo. These are potty training stickers. Her show was episode number 107 way back in April of 2017. And a lot has happened to Nina since then. She's been featured in the March of 2018 edition of Parents Magazine, and she saw sales skyrocket as a result of being in that publication. She's also added two business building extensions onto her initial core product of Peekaboo. One was by attending a Head Start conference to introduce her brand to early childhood educators. So this is a totally new audience for her product, but completely aligned with what she offers. And she also ramped up her potty training consulting services. Boy, could I have used that years ago. Sadly, Nina also faced some serious issues in her life last summer. Her mom had a massive stroke, and so she went back home to Tanzania for almost six months. Her business went on, though, to still have a successful year, and this could only happen because she had solid systems in place. There are too many achievements to mention with Nina, but I bring these up as an example of how your business can grow and expand once you've set that initial traction. And you'll note, Nina started with one very specific product. She's also asked me to offer you a free 20-minute phone consult if you're in the midst of potty training and you want some guidance. For information on that and all links to what I just shared about Nina, please reference the show notes page along with this episode. Now, speaking of seasons and the fall, our guest today has a product that fits right in. Caramels. You're going to hear how an initial failure led to an even larger opportunity. And we also dig deep into participating in local shows. So this could be craft shows or farmer's markets. We get into lots of detail on how to get the most out of them as you possibly can. Are you ready? Today, it's my pleasure to introduce you to Sarah Smith. Sarah started Southern Carmel in 2013 as a way to stay home with her newborn daughter. And as her daughter grew, so did the business. The caramels are made from scratch using pure ingredients. They're handcrafted, hand-cut, and hand-wrapped, too. Making the caramels in small batches allows them to maintain a level of consistency resulting in a product that makes people say, Oh my goodness! And I have to say that's true because I tasted these caramels just a few weeks back, so I can give total credit to that statement. With a product that lends itself to giving and sharing in the community, 
Sarah considers it a joy to give back to many causes with her time, talents, and financial support through the business. When she's not working on Southern Carmel, she's involved with various ministry opportunities focusing on leading and teaching women and children. She also loves to host events, which stems from the same foundation of giving that Southern Carmel is founded on. Sarah, I am thrilled that you're here today on the Gift Biz Unwrapped podcast. Thanks, Sue. I'm so happy to be here. I really appreciate you inviting me on. I can't wait to talk about your story, but before we do, I'd like for you to share with our listeners a little different side of you, and that is through what a motivational candle would look like if you were to create one of your own. So help us understand your motivational candle by color and then a quote or some type of saying that would be on that candle. Okay. Uh, I think the obvious choice for a caramel maker would be to say that it smelled like bourbon caramel or sea salted caramel, but I think I'm going to take it a different direction. I'm around those smells all day long and they certainly do energize me, but I love the color yellow. It's my favorite color. And when I see it, it brings me joy. That color itself energizes me. So I think if I had a motivational candle and had a chance to create one, it would be yellow. And it would probably have kind of a, because it's yellow, a citrus smell and scent that would energize me and get me going for the day. In terms of a quote, I thought about this and it's really more of a song. It's a kid's song, but it's something I say mentally to myself every day in the good times and in the bad times. And it's a song that goes, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. And it's just a reminder to me when times are really good and it's easy to be joyful, to just celebrate those gifts that come through the business, through life. And also, let's be honest, in a business, there's times when it's not always easy (laughs) and you might have a challenging day. That's something that I tell myself, like, this is the day that the Lord has made. Just stop whatever's going on. It's not that bad. Rejoice. You're alive. You're doing the things that you're called to do be glad in that day. So that's definitely something I tell myself when I have a hard day is just that it's not that bad. <laughs> it's, really, it's Tomorrow's going to be a new day and it's all good. It's just something I kind of sing in my head. So I think that would be the quote that would be on my candle because it is something I tell myself multiple times a day. Very positive, uplifting, and why not start your day in the best mood that you possibly can and reset if you need to along the way, <laughs> I guess I would exactly. say. Yeah. So Sarah, take us back a little bit. And I know you were talking about and and we have in the intro that you started Southern Carmel as a way to stay home with your daughter. But where did the whole idea come from that this is what you were going to do to start a business? Yeah, great question. It stems from, like your intro said, from gifting. And I used to give these caramels as gifts. Now, I did not have any background in the food industry. My background was in the aerospace industry, and I I worked on project management type work for the space industry here in Florida. That's a big thing, provides a lot of jobs. And that was my background. And I had a regular nine to five job, great benefits, and got to that stage in life where I wanted to start a family. And I really wanted to be able to stay home with my child at the time, didn't know if it was a boy or a girl, and had started thinking about ways to do that. And I had been giving these caramels out as Christmas gifts and birthday gifts and things like that. And people had been telling me, you need to sell these caramels for about a year or two. And I always told them, I'm not going to quit my day job. I have a really good thing going here. And entrepreneurship is not for me. I like the corporate world and the security (laughs) that it provides me. But fast forward to desires changing and wanting to be home with my daughter. And I had that idea in the back of my head on making the caramel. And that's when I started the business. So I did work up until 2014. And I had a year or two to develop the recipe, craft a business plan. I'd been selling them to different craft fairs and things like that before she was born. And then shortly after she was born, I put in my notice and stayed home with her. And I'd like to say the caramel business was my full-time job at that point, but I was a little optimistic on what I could handle with being a first-time mom. So it was very slow growth with the business (laughs) that first year. And I started from my home kitchen 
So I worked under the cottage food law here in the state of Florida. And when she was in bed, I would make the caramel and cut and wrap it at home. And at that point, it was just myself. And we had something once a month here called Friday Fest. And that was my first way to get out in the community and sell the caramels directly to the public. And people started telling me, you should sell these to grocery stores and things like that. And I started doing my research on what that would take. And in the state of Florida, that's not something that can be done from a home kitchen. Even if you were inspected, it needs to be a commercial kitchen and you need to be state inspected. So in order to grow my business and have that wholesale option, also be able to sell online, I would not be able to sell online in my home kitchen. That was a rule in Florida. So I started looking around to sublease kitchen space. Again, still really young child at home, and I didn't want to take the overhead of my own full kitchen. Okay, I want to stop you here just for a second, because I have a number of questions. And I know there are so many people who are listening right now who can totally relate to what you just said, your story up to this point. Maybe about having a daughter and that being the reason to change, but I'm specifically talking about they make something and people are saying to them, this is so beautiful, this is so delicious, you know, depending on your product, you should sell it. At that time, did you believe them or did you think, oh, well, they're just being nice? It's nice, it's complimentary, that's wonderful, but at what point did you really start seriously thinking, hey, maybe this is something? I think it was the more that people tried it that didn't love me. (laughs) So you really knew their comments weren't just because you were already friends or family. Right. You've got friends, you've got family. You already know they love you. They like you. Of course, they'd be honest, maybe. But when I started to sample the caramel in the community with complete strangers And people would say things like, this is the best caramel I've ever had, or these taste just like my grandma used to make. I've tried her recipe so many times, and I just can never figure it out. And that comment kept coming up over and over again of just this expression of, I've tried to make this before, and I can't. I burn it. It's too soft. It turns back to sugar. All the things that I had experienced myself when fine-tuning the recipe. But once I realized that this wasn't cookies and things like that, anybody could make a cookie. But you have to really differentiate yourself. And once I realized that not everybody can make a caramel or not everybody has the patience to hand wrap every single piece and package it up in a larger quantity... That really started to give me the thought of, okay, this is something outside of what people could expect. This is a viable business. Not everybody could do it, but also you had some type of a flavor or some type of a mystery method or secret or something that people were willing to strive for, like they really wanted it and weren't able to achieve it themselves. So you saw the need out there and the interest, I guess. Exactly. Right. I don't know if anyone needs caramel, but I would kind of say I do. (laughs) I'll go with that. It's one of those things. People sometimes come to us and say, oh, can you make a sugar-free caramel? And I'm sure there's a market for that. I know there's a lot of people that have health concerns, diabetes. And I always tell them, we're not a health brand. We do make everything with pure ingredients. We don't use corn syrup or anything like that. So we do strive to make the purest caramel you can get. But it's all about just bringing a little bit of joy into somebody's life. And I'm sure many of the listeners here with being in the gift industry, that's what it's about. I mean, that's really what this caramel is. It's not saving lives. And your dietician is not going to say, Jane, you need more caramel in your life. But it puts a smile on people's face when they bite into it. They haven't had anything like it. And it's just a small indulgence in their day. Well, I would say a psychologist might say, yeah, you need more caramel because it's going to make you happier. Possibly, yes. (laughs) I could go with that. (laughs) But you just brought up a really important business point here, too, is that you're really staying in your lane. I mean, you know what you're standing for. You're standing for traditionally made caramel. 
not sugar-free. And I really, really appreciate and love that you're sharing that people have asked you for something else. And it would be so easy just to sway, say, oh, we need to have that to stay relevant because the market's going to more healthy type, gluten-free, like all these crazy things, right? But you've said no, you've put your foot in the sand, what is it? Stick in the sand? I'm not sure what it is. <laughs> Your mark in the sand, let's say, that says, no, this is what we stand for. This is what we make. And I think you're going to be more successful for it as you're already seeing because you're standing for a specific thing. Absolutely. And to be honest, one of the things that sets our caramel apart, like I said, sugar is the main ingredient, but we do use pure ingredients. Many caramels on the shelf use corn syrup, where we've gone out of our way to fine-tune a recipe that doesn't use corn syrup. In fact, the very first caramels I ever made had corn syrup in them. But as time went on, and I can share a little bit more about that with you later, it became evident that that was not the best thing for us, that we really needed to find a way to make them without corn syrup. And it differentiated us from other caramel makers out there. And there's not many that don't use corn syrup. And if you look at the ingredient label on a lot of the caramels on the shelf, there's a much longer list than sugar, cream, and butter. So that is one thing that, yes, it is sugar. It is a sweet, but we've managed to make it without a bunch of additives and preservatives that also aren't good for you. Okay. So you said there's a story behind it. So let's go there because I don't want to forget about it later. Sure. So one of the, should I say, roadblocks when starting the business and as time went on with the caramel was our shelf life. So you make something at home and it doesn't matter what the shelf life is because you're going to sell it at a market and they're going to eat it right there and no big deal. But as we grew into a wholesale market, and I alluded to it earlier, but that was when I started a kitchen sharing situation. So that was kind of middle of our story was I went from a home kitchen to subleasing a bakery. A really sweet woman let me use her bakery on Sunday and Monday when she was closed. So we had our state inspection now. I was able to sell to local grocery markets and I was able to sell online. And I made it the same way I always did. And it lasted for about six weeks. And I was putting them in the grocery stores. And many of them looked at me and said, we can't do anything with six weeks. I mean, we can't sell a whole case worth in six weeks, but let's try it. And like I said earlier, we live in Florida. We live really close to the beach. And a lot of our high-end grocery markets are on the beach, which have really high humidity. And our caramels were sitting on the shelf and they were crystallizing within two to three weeks. Oh, no. Yeah. So something that was always smooth and creamy and great. We're getting phone calls. I say it was me. <laughs> you know, I was getting phone calls that the caramel was turning back to sugar and they wanted their money back and they couldn't sell it. And I was like, well, what do I do? I mean, the whole reason it tastes the way it does is the recipe. And at that point, you never used corn syrup. Is that correct? No, I, I had been using corn syrup. You had then. been using corn syrup. Okay. So this was your initial recipe, if you will. Right. Beginning stages. Yep. All right. So I could see people at this point saying, oh my gosh, I'm a failure. This isn't going to work. I'm done. Exactly. Doesn't sound like that's what you did. No, not at all. It was hard. I mean, because it was in the course of a week that I had three or four different mar I mean, it was happening to everybody. And the people that were on the beach, it was happening much faster. So we went back to the drawing board and I was kind of tweaking. I have this little composition notebook that every recipe I test, I would tweak it and change some things here and there. And that's when I started playing with making the caramels without corn syrup. And I'm not going to go into too much detail there because that is part of what sets us apart from our competitors. But we were able to make it without the corn syrup. And a happy byproduct of that was that people now liked the fact that it didn't have corn syrup. So the driving force was my shelf life. It had nothing to do with corn syrup versus non-corn syrup. It had to do with shelf life and not being able to have a recipe that would last for weeks. So once we made the tweak, our shelf life is now 16 weeks, so four months. Perfect. Oh my gosh, that's so great. So here's a perfect example, though, of turning a real problem, not only correcting it, but turning it into your favor, right? 
Absolutely. It was an act. I would, won't say it. it was an accident. It was a problem that needed to be solved for the shelf life reason, but it ended up putting us in even a better place because we're one of the few caramels out on the market that don't use corn syrup. And do you promote that in your marketing? Yes, we do. And are there health benefits to not using corn syrup or it just makes for a different product or how do you promote it? What's the messaging? Many people, I won't say most, but many products out there that use corn syrup, they're using high fructose corn syrup and they really aren't putting any distinction versus corn syrup and high fructose corn syrup. And we all know that high fructose corn syrup is not the best for us. So people, even if it's not high fructose, even if it's just corn syrup, because there is a difference, people still have a negative connotation when they hear corn syrup now. So that is one thing that as soon as we say, oh, and we don't use corn syrup in our caramels, people immediately, oh, really? You know, it's like, oh, I'll buy it now. (laughs) I'm guessing they also then want to taste it. Like, oh, you're not. Then what do these caramels even taste like? And then they get the oh, my goodness reaction, right? (laughs) When they've tasted them, they're so delicious. And one thing leads to another. So just the fact that you don't use corn syrup, I would guess, piques the curiosity when you're in a situation where you're sampling the product. Absolutely. And it helps to where it doesn't stick to your teeth. That's another thing with caramel. A lot of times you bite into a caramel and you've got to kind of pick at your dental work (laughs) to make sure you're not pulling something out. Your dentist is angry with you. Right. But one of the best compliments we get is when people are hesitant to try it because they're like, oh, I don't like caramel. It always sticks in my teeth. It's really not my thing. And maybe their friend next to them is like, no, really, you got to try these. These are the best things ever. And so they'll hesitantly try one because they're expecting it to do what every other caramel does and stick to their teeth. And then their eyes just light up and they're like, oh, this not only does it taste amazing, but it's just this smooth, creamy caramel that doesn't stick to my teeth. Yep. And delicious, I have to say, once again. Yes. I'm so glad you like them. Oh, love them. Well, I like caramel anyway. And so now I've just upped my game. <laughs> I have a different level now when I'm analyzing A different appreciation. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) And so with the absence of the corn syrup, then I'm guessing that you're able to get shelf placement where others can't. So you end up being kind of alone in the category, being able to be the caramel that wholesalers can stock specifically because of the warm environment, etc. Exactly. And there are a few stockists that have requirements for their ingredient list some grocery stores chains that they have a list. If any of our products have this ingredient in it, we cannot sell it. And there's a few that we've made it into their stores that corn syrup is one of them. So I guess one that over some other vendors because they would have that ingredient in there. Yeah. Taking advantage of an opportunity that you have in the market in that way, for sure. So question for you on the stores that came back to you and said, we can't sell this, we need to take it off the shelf. You went back, adjusted the recipe, et cetera. Did you re-approach those stores then saying, I've got a different product now? I did. And there was one that did not want to continue the relationship. But to be honest, everybody else was willing to give us a second try. And we did a lot of samplings, a lot of demos where we would come in with that new product and sample it. And once they saw that they could keep it on their shelf for four months now, and that they were moving the product within that time, they were happy. We were happy. We were seeing reorders. So, you know, like I said, there was one and I understand that. When you're starting out, sometimes something like that happens and it's a sign that you're still very much a starter business. You're not ready for this. There's things you haven't considered. We don't want to mess with this product right now. And I could understand that at that time. And we've grown a lot since then with our inspections and labeling. And we've continued to grow out of that. But looking back at that point, we were very bare bones. And it was a risk for some people to try us. And when they had that negative experience, we didn't pick up that one store. But like I said, everybody else, we live in a great local community. And everybody was willing to give us a second shot. And really, that was so early on. Many of our accounts don't know that's part of our history. They just know that we have an amazing caramel without corn syrup that lasts on their shelf for four months. (laughs) Right. 
But I'll tell you, I mean, every single company has something, some barrier that they come up against. And then it's up to you as the business owner, am I going to work through it? How am I going to work through it? And you get smarter as you go, right? So if someone looks at you now, they see your product on the shelf, or like I did, I saw you at a show. It's not like you jumped from nothing to all of a sudden where you are now. It's an evolution. You get smarter, you get wiser, you get more sophisticated, perhaps in your marketing, your packaging, et cetera. It's a journey. Absolutely. We're going to hear more from Sarah right after a word from our sponsor. This podcast is made possible thanks to the support of the Ribbon Print Company. Create custom ribbons right in your store or craft studio in seconds. Visit theribbonprintcompany.com for more information. Let's talk a little bit more about sampling. I'd be curious in your expert opinion here, and let me lay some groundwork. Regardless of the product that a lot of our listeners have, because it ranges all over the board, right? One of the things that a lot of people will do is test their product through craft shows, okay? And I guess I'm just, it doesn't necessarily need to apply to consumable businesses only at this point, but I've actually been to some shows where people have an edible product, cookies or something like that. They're selling at craft shows, but they're not giving away samples at all, which to me is like crazy. That would seem to be the obvious thing. But in your experience, at shows and or sampling in stores. Is there any advice that you'd have? Any extra benefits about sampling? Let's just talk a little bit about that, maybe to give our listeners some ideas of things that they could be doing and applying when they're in a sampling situation. Absolutely. And to be honest, we've kind of been all over the map on this one with our lessons learned on when it's worth it and when it's not, because it's an added cost, right? Sometimes it's not just the cost of your product, but it's the time to be there. During the holiday season, I'm the owner. So if I'm there sampling, it's no big deal. But if I send somebody else, now I have the labor to pay them for however many hours of being there and the the cost of the product. So cost is always something to consider. And I think that's something that people don't look at when they're starting out. When you've got a hobby business, you're starting out at a craft show, they, they don't think of all the expense that goes into sampling. So say you're doing a craft show and you're doing a demo or sample, you've got cookies, whatever it is, you've got the cost to make those, you've got your labor to be there. So figure out what the going rate is in your area of the country if you were to pay someone to market your product. And I did that and tested Central Florida with what other demonstrators were making. Wine demonstrations are always out in different marketplaces. And so I'd ask them, what do you get? (laughs) And I understand that wine is different from some other things, but it gave me a gauge for... For labor specifically, you're talking. For labor specifically. And then you've got the cost of the event. So if it's a craft show, maybe you paid $40 for your table or whatever it is. And then how much did you sell that day as a result of your sampling? In the beginning... For what we had, a consumable, we're claiming it's the best caramel ever. Nobody in the world had ever heard of us. We had to sample. It's a premium product. It's a premium priced product. So people weren't going to pay that premium price and take a risk on it if they didn't know how good it was. Right. So it definitely was beneficial in the beginning, especially for our product, because if they were going to pay that much, <laughs> they needed to know it was worth that much. And it was. I mean, many people would try one and immediately say, I want one for every employee in my office. I'm going to take 10 home and gift them to everybody on Monday just to let them know that they're doing a great job. So once they tried it, I would sell it. And then you keep track of that in the beginning. So whatever you're demonstrating or selling at that particular event, try to figure out what your cost was to be there to demonstrate. And then what's your return on that? Are you actually selling or getting orders or it could be gauged differently. I understand that for certain things, you're not going to make a sale right there on the spot, but maybe you made a really good contact and they want to order from you around Thanksgiving. And, And once that comes through, you can see that there was value in that sampling. I will say as we grew, everybody in the world wants you to sample. If you're in the grocery market, specialty food type thing, they want you to be there every weekend sampling. And when we were first getting into stores, we did a lot of that. And then 
we were spending so much money sampling that we were still getting return. I mean, we were still getting reorders from those stores, but it got to a point that it was like, oh my goodness, we are spending so much money doing these demonstrations. How can we reevaluate this? And depending on the setup of the customer, we have tweaked that over the years where maybe now if we set up a new wholesale account, we can include complimentary product for the first opening order and we'll send some nice marketing material, printed flyers that they can put up in their store on their shelf and let people know that it's a new product. If it's in Florida, that it's locally made. And then they're doing the sampling and we're not sending someone out. Because sometimes as we're growing, these places are are a four-hour drive away. I mean, it's not like they're in our county anymore. So as you grow, it definitely reaches a point where the expectation is that you sample. And it's kind of like, we could go broke trying to sample everywhere. And then you might need to tweak it. That was probably more than you wanted to know. That was a long answer. (laughs) No, it was a great answer. And I think particularly for your situation, because your ingredients are different, you want people, I mean, it's to your benefit that people are sampling and trying it because they have an assumed taste that they're going to have when they put your caramel in their mouth. And then it's different right? We were just talking about how it could stick to your teeth. It's whatever. And all of a sudden people see, no, this is different. This is something special. And they're not going to know that unless you sample. So I think in a way, depending on your product, you have to do that if you're new to the market, at least to start getting some footing going. I'm also thinking, and I don't know if you did this, Sarah, and You might not have had to. I don't know the cost structure that you have. But apart from the labor, your product, if your product is really expensive, maybe you make pieces that are smaller. So you're not giving a whole caramel, maybe you're giving a half a caramel, you know, just to cut down on product costs. Again, Sarah, that might not apply to you. It's just an idea for some of our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. Let's say you make big, huge Mongo cookies, right? Like that's your thing. Maybe you're going to break those cookies up. Absolutely. Just a taste. Yeah, just a taste. So, And I really like what you're talking about here, too, in terms of as you move forward, you're still providing the opportunity to sample, but you're pulling out the labor portion for yourself. Right. Yeah. So really smart move. I also would suggest, tell me if this was your experience, that in the very beginning when you're sampling, you also want to see customers' reactions, how they're talking about it, because you can get a lot of product information from your customers just observing how they're interacting and tasting your product. Absolutely. If you start seeing, like you say, people were saying, oh my goodness, right? That could even be something then that carries on into promotional lines, social media lines, all that type of thing. So, And it's not coming from you, it's coming from your customers. Absolutely. Some of the best testimonials come just that way. You're standing across from that customer. You're gauging their reaction. They say something that is just said so succinctly. And sometimes I'll say, do you mind if I use that as a testimonial for marketing purposes? And they're like, no. And I'll just take out my phone and write down what they said and then use that for Instagram or something else. But Mm -hmm. absolutely to just use that feedback for marketing purposes. Yeah. And so how do you, when you're sampling, you talk about the fact that people aren't necessarily going to buy right then and there. They might, you know, if they're at a small show, they might buy for their consumption right at the show, but you're really getting the potential for larger orders later, right? How are you capturing contact information so that you can stay in touch with them? Great question. So typically anytime that we sample an event like a craft show or during the holidays, there's always a lot of craft shows. We always have an email sign up out. Now, one of the things that can be a little touchy depending on the type of event that you're sampling at is if somebody else is hosting it and they've invited you to come in, or maybe it's a paid event, it's a ticketed event where we've been a part of just where people can come and taste different foods of the area, whether it's from a local community or even central Florida, but people get a wristband and they get to come and try all the different products. We had something like that in our community just this past weekend. There was a big art festival, but along with it was Taste of Highland Park. So vendors would come in, you could buy product, but I think there was also sampling. So like Taste of the Town type thing, something like that, you mean? 
Yeah. And like a food and wine festival, we've been part of food and wine festivals where people pay a decent amount of money to come in and get unlimited food and wine. And they have that wristband and you've got to learn your different events. Sometimes the expectation for the host of that event is, look, these people have paid to be here. They just want to eat, drink and be merry. We don't want you marketing. We don't want you trying to get email addresses. And you basically you being here is your marketing. Which means then it's the consumer's responsibility to get back in touch with you. You have no way of getting to them, right? Absolutely. And to be honest, you've got to gauge on whether those are worth it, right? Because right. if you're just giving out product to people, it's on them to come seek you out and find you. Maybe that's not the best event. But I have found as time has gone on, the way events are structured with sampling and kind of, I know email sign up is typical at events like that, where either you have an iPad out where they can sign up or just a printed sheet where they give your email address. There's definitely events that are structured in a way where that is frowned upon. And sometimes that's okay. Sometimes maybe the host of the event would give an email list afterwards, which is very generous and always appreciated. And then you don't have to worry about email capture during the event. And then there's other times that maybe if it's a really upscale, high-end event, it is good to be there, even though you're not permitted to do email capture or things like that. Even sometimes just getting business cards for those. Like we have one event here in town. It's really, really high-end. And there's just a lot of business owners in the community, a lot of doctors and lawyers and different people that put on galas. And as many of the listeners here are in the gift industry and come Christmas time, you're looking for those corporate people to connect with. A lot of times, even if I can't get an email capture, it's, oh, you love these and you own XYZ business. Can I get a business card? I would love to follow up with you after this event and just see if we can help you out with your holiday gifts this year. And then that way, it's a really non-threatening way to where you're making connection through that event, but it's not as gimmicky as sign here. <laughs> right. What do you think of doing some type of a raffle at your table, booth, whatever it is, or including your business contact information with the product? Raffles are great. I love raffles. And that's something I usually ask if I'm doing an event. If they haven't advertised that we're allowed to do them, I'll ask like, hey, do you mind if I do a raffle for, we have a sampler box where people can try four different flavors of caramel. And then people could drop in their card, either a business card, if it's that type of event, or they can fill out a card with email address, phone number, name, things like that. And that's a great way to entice people to give their contact information. So I'm a big fan of that. <laughs> right. And some people won't because they know exactly what's going to happen. You know, they're going to be followed up with an email. They can unsubscribe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they can unsubscribe. Exactly. So I think the lesson here might be just keep this top of mind. And for any event that you're doing, find out what the rules are for an event. And sometimes you're not going to be able to do anything. That's fine. But you don't want to be in a position where later you say, dang, I could have gotten email addresses and I didn't. Right. That's not as great. And then analyzing afterwards how valuable the event was in terms of what's happened, new customers, new prospects in the case of potential corporate client, right? Because you only need one huge corporate client or even medium size for an event to have been completely worthwhile. Absolutely. One other thing I like to do after an event. So whatever email addresses I captured from that event, I'll go back the next day or if it was on a Friday, I might wait until the following Monday. And I will just send an email through my marketing hub that I use. And I typically do not discount. I'm not a discount brand. But I like to track if those people will be spending with us. So that is an example where I might give a discount code for just those people that just subscribed and I'll have a code that's specific to that event and they might get 15% off. And it's only good for three or four days. Like they have to use it right away. Mm -hmm. But it's enough that I can track like, ooh, not only did I pick up email addresses, but I just picked up new customers that, will consistently keep buying from me. Right. Okay. So this is going to be an interesting question. Okay. 100% agree with you. I agree with you also on discounts, but coding the discount so you can see 
who's coming back is a great way to track what events are working. So every event has a different code. Exactly. Okay, so let's say you just did an event last weekend. You come back, you have emails from people who, however you attracted those emails, you send them out a promotion, thanks for sampling our product, whatever you're going to say, and you give them a code. Some people take the code and buy a product, at which point they've turned into a customer. So now they can be on your customer list, you can promote to them as a customer. What do you do then with those people who did not take advantage of the discount? Up till now, they do stay on my distribution list. Mm -hmm. But I personally don't send out like a follow up blast, if you will. I know of some that do that, like they'll track who made a purchase and who didn't. And they'll send up a follow up blast to like, hey, we missed you. I never get rid of email addresses. I think I've heard of one person that actually does. Most don't. (laughs) Most never get rid of any email address. But I still keep them on my distribution list. And again, if they're not interested, then they don't have to subscribe. Okay, so you'll continue emailing them and then they can always unsubscribe, which legally you have to do just in case some of our listeners don't know that. If you're ever sending out something to customers, you have to have a way, usually it's an unsubscribe button at the bottom that most email providers really easily just integrate in with their systems. So, but you have to absolutely do that. Some people who aren't going through a true email provider, you're just sending out an email, let's say through a list of emails, like you're still using just Gmail to send out just a random list then what people will do is they'll say, if you're not interested in receiving these emails, reply with unsubscribe in the subject line or something like that. But just an aside. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great comment for people that might still just be using their email to do that. But another wonderful reason on why, even if you only have 100 names, it's great to switch to an email marketing service. And there's MailChimp. They're free. And I know a lot of people use that one. MailChimp to start, and then we've since switched. And what are you using now? We are using Mad Mimi. What is it? Mad Mimi. M-I-M-I. Mad Mimi. Yeah. That's interesting. I've not heard of that one. I have to go check them out. Yeah, we like it. And one of the reasons, again, you kind of learn your demographic and where you're at. Because a lot of our email, well, a lot of our emails are captured through our website now, which those are coming nationally. Those are coming from all over the country. But specifically, if we're doing an event, a local event, we know that in our county that MailChimp does not deliver to AOL.com or CFL.R.com. It will get kicked back. So personally, because working with our web developer, we know where we live and we know where the bulk of our subscribers are coming from. And the fact that those emails do not get delivered, that was why we switched to Mad Mimi. But again, that wouldn't necessarily apply to everybody everywhere they lived. It just for whatever reason in Central Florida, that's how it works. Got it. Well, an email is a topic unto itself. But I think the real point here is you should be using an email provider. MailChimp, Constant Contact, Mad Mimi, now I'm going to add to my list. (laughs) Yeah, it's a little cheaper. There are a number of them out there. They're not expensive. Many of them will allow you to use their systems for a list up to a certain number of contacts. Maybe it's 500, maybe it's 100, I don't know. They're different for different people. So definitely something to check out if you're still doing it just yourself. There are a lot of reasons to be doing it that way. So, okay, wonderful. Taking you back to your kitchen when you landed the recipe that is your golden secret claim to Southern Caramel fame. (laughs) How'd you like that? (laughs) That was great. I like that a lot. (laughs) Okay, good. What types of things do you have in place to protect the recipe? Well, right now I'm the only one that makes it. So that's a big one. That's intentional. (laughs) The knowledge lies only with you. But Sarah, what happens if you get sick or something happens? Do you have it written down somewhere and put under lock and key or something like that? Yes. This has changed a little bit in the last year. So when I first got the recipe to where it was and we were still in a kitchen sharing situation, I was the only one that made it and I was the only one that knew how to make it. So if anything happened then, there went the recipe. You're out of luck. I will say at that stage in the game, we were still very, very small. We were selling to stores, but it was still 
I hate the term hobby business. I feel like it's so belittling when you're trying to grow something. I had a, a lot of coaches say, oh, well, it's just a hobby, it's just a hobby business. And I'm like, well, I really am trying to grow this. This doesn't feel like a hobby to me. This is, feels like I'm growing a business. But I, right. I do understand that there are other people that for them it is a hobby business. For me, the term has always had negative connotations, but that's another thing. For me, it makes me look back and say, oh, just you wait. I'll be back to you in about a year. Yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of where we're at, to be honest. Yeah, I, I feel like there's some people I would love to go back to now and say, does it look like a hobby now? But and now I got lost on the question now that we got on the side. We were talking about the recipe. Like, that is your golden gem of the business, right? That's right. the heartbeat of the business. So we were talking about protection, keeping it safe. And I bring it up only because I think especially when you're starting a business and you're starting to have people help you because you're getting the bigger orders and you need help, people may not pay attention to the fact that that needs some protection and safety around it. Yeah, absolutely. So now that we're in a different situation, a little over a year ago was a huge growth point for Southern Carmel. My dad joined me as a business partner. Yay, dad. Yeah, exactly. Yay, dad. Knight in shining armor. It was a huge pivotal moment for Southern Carmel because I had a recipe. I had a small base of accounts and I really needed that business knowledge. I mean, I'm fairly young and I will fully recognize that there's just a lot of things in life that I haven't experienced yet. Give it time. I will. But there's other people that have a lot of experience and have gone through a lot of different businesses, worked a lot of different aspects of different businesses. And my dad is one of those jack of all trades who's done a lot of things and brought a lot of knowledge to the table. So I had kind of been teasing him for about a year. I'm like, oh, you need to quit your job and come help me grow Southern Carmel. And everything kind of worked out a little over a year ago for he was at a point when he said, okay, I will come and help you grow Southern Carmel. And so now that he is on board, I have shared the recipe with him. So if I win the lottery tomorrow and walk away, which I wouldn't, he knows the recipe and he can make that. And when we moved into the kitchen that we're in now, we stood side by side and he can make it if I wasn't there. And then we do have everything written down, but it's kind of funny. I purposefully, not everything is written like all in one place, if that makes sense. Oh, I like that. It's like a puzzle. You got to know. It is. It's kind of all in one notebook. But yeah, I've kind of written it in a way that sometimes yeah. there's measurements, but not words, because I know what the ingredients are. So you might see like two and a half cups of something, but you're like, I don't two and a half cups of what? So if anybody found it and wanted to sell it for a billion dollars, they'd have to decipher it. <laughs> Got it. It is important just to recognize that that is the most important part of your business. It is. The recipe and you want to protect it, especially as you grow. As you get bigger and bigger and bigger, you have employees who are coming in, et cetera, non-disclosure agreements, non-competes, you know, all that type of thing. But right. that's not necessarily for today. <laughs> so... <laughs> All right. How are you working towards the holidays now? This I'm imagining it is a big season for you. So what types of things do you start thinking about to make the most of that opportunity as possible? Yeah, great question, especially in this gifting industry as a whole. I think many listeners can recognize that that started a couple months ago, right? Like we all kind of start planning for the holidays in the summer. I know the summer is slower for many businesses, but for candy, it's really slow. So we've tried to structure our business in a way that we have some form of revenue coming 12 months out of the year, even though we blow fourth quarter out of the water because that is caramel season. I mean, everybody's got caramel in the brain. But because summer is a little bit slower, that always gives us an opportunity to really get ready for the holidays and figure out which flavors we're going to offer. Last year, one of our holiday flavors was coffee, which we ended up keeping year round. Yum. Yeah. And there's a couple of flavors that were, we made a decision on whether we were going to offer those or not. So fine tuning our holiday lineup on what we're going to do for flavors and then starting to plan for packaging materials. So for us, our raw goods, those 
we can only order as fast as we go through them. We were a smaller setup, so we don't have a huge amount of storage. Plus the fact that half of our ingredients are cream and butter. You can't like store those forever. Right. So for raw materials, in terms of the ingredients, we can consistently stay on top of ordering that through our supplier during the holidays. But like our boxes, our packaging boxes that we use, not shippers, not like something you'd send UPS, but like the actual packaging, that's something that we've started planning for and ordering now. And this is where it gets hard for a small business because every year is better than the year before. And fourth quarter every year is way better than the year before. And it's really hard to predict what we're going to sell because we're picking up new customers every single year. And not only we're picking up new customers, but new volume, because as we're growing, we're able to produce more than we ever have. We just actually last week got a cutting machine and a wrapping machine. So something that's always been done by hand, it's now automated to the fact that we can do more volume than we have ever done before by light years. And it really opens up a lot of possibilities, but we're trying to figure it. In fact, we're still kind of having this conversation of what do we need to be ordering for the holidays for fourth quarter? Because you're talking about specific holiday themed packaging. Well, see, ours is a little bit different than many other companies out there. I think many listeners probably have holiday specific packaging that whoever your supplier is, you need to start ordering. Our packaging has a lot of personal touches with stamping, like hand stamping the flavor. We hand tie all the string on our boxes and then we have logo stickers. So the way we differentiate our holiday packaging is simply with a red string instead of a blue string that we normally use. And people adore it. They love our packaging. It's a just a brown box with the red and white candy cane string. And it's really, really simple. But it's also something that our customers love. So it's a little bit easier for us because it's not like a printed candy cane box or, you know, something with Santa on it or something like that. It's something that we differentiate with the color of the string. Mm -hmm. So for us, for planning purposes, it's a matter of all of our boxes. Like I already ordered our string for the holidays and I just ordered like twice as much as we went through last year. And then around October, November, I might have more of a feel for what our orders are going to look like. And I might need to place a second order. Got it. But again, you got to plan for that. And to be honest, last year, again, a huge growth year for us. It felt like we were constantly running out of stuff. And we're in Florida. One of our suppliers is in California. One's in Ohio. We've got stuff coming from all over the country. And it's not just the shipping time to get here. But the lead time on some of those items and one of our boxes, it was on back order, like the whole country wanted this box and it just was on back order over and over and over again. So we kept ordering ahead of what we thought we would need and we kept running out and we'd place an order in what we thought was enough time. And they're like, oh, well, this is on four week back order or six week back order. And I'm like, well, I'm sitting on a couple thousand of these, but we're going to run out. We need more. Did you have a contingency plan, like a second option box? What do you do? We did have a contingency plan that fortunately we never had to tap into. Our supplier was amazing to work with and they actually were able to limit the lead time on one of the line items. Like they worked with us to where they cut two weeks off and we did work with one of our customers that was ordering thousands a lot. We were able to push it out like a week And that combined with the supplier working with us, we were able to meet the demand, but it was close and everybody was getting real nervous and sweating a lot. Gotcha. Okay. So it sounds like you're not having trouble (laughs) getting customers. That's for sure. Especially with this whole story around the holidays. But what are you doing then promotionally or with brochures or how are you getting the word out about your holiday line to customers and also prospects? This is one of those things I feel like we're probably a little different from most companies that I'm talking to because we are not putting a lot of money into promotional materials and digital marketing and all of the things that it seems like a lot of companies are investing in to get the word out. 
primarily because they cost a lot of money. It depends on the product and the industry, but we're still like really old school, just making a prospect list and picking up the phone and calling or following up with emails. And it's working. I mean, like I said, in the age that we're in, the digital age, I kind of feel like it's almost stone age prospecting at times because things are just done so differently now. But to be honest, we haven't had a ton of success when we try to switch to, oh, we're going to put a ton of focus on Instagram or Facebook or whatever it happens to be. We're going to pay for all these ads. And what we end up having is a lot of ad dollars with not a lot of customers. I think it's still that personal touch, but still the one-on-one. And for a company to reach out specifically sets you apart, number one and shows that you really care. And I'm guessing that you're prioritizing, like you're starting with the biggest clients and getting them covered, make sure they're set, and then just going down the list. Yeah, absolutely. Whether it's find a specific industry that pairs well with your product and you've had success with one, whether it's a hotel, it's like, okay, let's go after every hotel in the world. Not really. But if we have had success with hotels, we just start calling sales managers at hotels and saying, hey, would you use our product for your sales team? Would you put us in your sundry shop at the hotel? And that's just one example of, okay, we found success here. Let's continue going after more of these. And who's doing that? Is it you or is it dad? It's me and my dad. The two of you. Okay. And we're at the point that we need a sales team. So we've kind of dabbled with a couple of things. We did have a salesperson that we had on contract and it didn't work out. (laughs) It was no harm, no foul kind of thing. They just didn't sell anything. Well, you learn. You learn how you're going to set it up and how it's going to work right. Right. And I'm not trying to toot my own horn or anything, but we sell really well because this is our baby. This is our product and we can sell it better than somebody else. But at the the same point in the day, we're also cooking and we're also wrapping it and we're boxing it. We're doing the accounting and we're doing the events. And I mean, I know this is nothing new for everybody listening. I mean, you get to the point that you can't do it all. Yeah. So there'll be a new step in the future. Absolutely. (laughs) Wonderful. Well, it's really exciting to catch you at this point, at this stage in your development, because you clearly have traction. You're seeing success. You have a product, absolutely, that has a unique market. Your messaging is right on, and it's exciting. And there's so much more growth opportunity moving forward. So that's very exciting. At this point, let me offer you a virtual gift. So this is a magical box of unlimited possibilities for you with Southern Caramel or for you just personally, doesn't matter. So it's your dream or your goal of almost unreachable heights that you'd wish to obtain. Please accept this gift and open it right here on this show. What's inside your box? Okay, you're going to laugh, but it's a person. I'm ready. (laughs) It's the key. It's something that we'd love really, really bad. It is a buyer for Cracker Barrel who will bring us into the gift shops at Cracker Barrel. Ooh, love that. I love, first off, Sarah, how specific it is. Because you're going to be able to know, yes, no, this is happening or it isn't. Right. Love it, love it. Okay, we're putting it out into the universe. This is a law yes. of attraction question in disguise. Yeah, if anybody knows someone in Cracker Barrel, we're ready. We're ready for you. <laughs> All right, then. And how can people connect with you online because they know somebody at Cracker Barrel? They need to get in touch with you. How are they going to do that? The best way is probably email, which is, I'm sure you'll, you'll link to it here in the podcast, but it's Sarah with an H at southerncaramel.com. Wonderful. And that will be on the show notes page as well as your website, social media links, etc. So Gift Biz listeners, you know that you can always go there and resource for every show and this is no different. And your website is southerncaramel.com, correct? That is correct. Wonderful. Well, thank you so, so much, Sarah. This has been absolutely fabulous. As I was just mentioning a second ago, just watching your journey, seeing where you are, seeing how much you've progressed is fabulous and your product is spectacular. So I wish you continued success. Oh, thanks so much, Sue. I really appreciate your time today. I really enjoyed this discussion with Sarah and the two big lessons that we covered. 
First, that initial problems with your product can lead to identifying even more potential. So if this happens to you, adjust your product. Don't give up on your big goal. Second is the opportunity Sarah dives into with local shows. In this season, there are craft shows and bazaars all around, no matter where you live. Take advantage of this. And if you've never done one before, I challenge you to jump in. Because if not now, when? Up next week, we're switching gears. We're talking to a maker who has a business like no other. I know you're going to enjoy hearing her story, and it might just spark some brand new ideas for you. A product we've never covered here before, and a journey to get her there like no other. Tune in next Monday to hear what it's all about. And until then, make it a great week. Bye for now. Are you discouraged because your business is not performing as you had envisioned? Are you stuck and confused about how to turn things around? Sue's new best-selling book is structured to help you identify where the holes are in your business and show you exactly how to fix them. You'll learn from Sue and owners just like you who are seeing real growth and are living their dream. Maker to master. Find and fix what's not working in your small business. Get it on Amazon or through www.giftbizunwrapped.com master.